Hey, Generation Church, we welcome you and invite you to encounter Jesus with us. We believe that through him, we will encounter love and discover our purpose. So take a seat, lean in, and let this message fortify your faith. You know, last Sunday, we celebrated the greatest victory in human history. The resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He defeated death, hell, and the grave and was resurrected to the right hand of the Father. And his victory that he won last Sunday, if it were, is our victory today. So we get to continue to walk in this glorious victory. But you know, historically, I've seen that the Sunday after Resurrection Sunday is is normally what they call traditionally low Sunday. And it's low in attendance and low in enthusiasm. And I've always wondered, why in the world, after the most glorious victory, that you have such a low Sunday? And it's like as if we take our foot off the accelerator. You know, we're just kind of letting off the gas a little bit. We're, we're like, we're going into cruise control. We're just kind of maintaining. We're like, okay, that was nice last week. Okay, let's just, <laughs> let's just relax now. You know, it's like, we, it's like we go into neutral. And so in that, I'm going to share with you um, a little historical fact. In 1994, Kentucky Wildcats de- defeated LSU. Do you remember that? <laughs> well, in 1994, it is noted as one of the greatest comebacks in basketball history. I bet you didn't know that. It's the game known as the Mardi Gras Miracle. And Kentucky Wildcats, they engineered one of the greatest comebacks in NCAA history. They were trailing at halftime 68 to 37. And LSU was celebrating, and they were like, we got this in the bag. And at halftime, they just basically went, they went into neutral. They kind of went into cruise control. They thought, Surely they can't make up a 30-point deficit. The Wildcats regrouped and mounted an impressive comeback and gave them a 99-95 win over LSU. They managed to outscore LSU Tigers 62-27 in the last 15 minutes of the game. That's huge. But you know what? I think the body of Christ is like the Kentucky Wildcats at halftime. We, we got a huge victory. We're up. There's no way the enemy or our opponent can come back. But the bottom line is that we kind of got going to cruise control. And all of a sudden, it's like we feel like we're losing the ground that we gained last Sunday. Do you know that? And... So today I want to talk about two Sundays. 
that have tremendous historical importance for the Christian church today. First, I want to talk about Resurrection Sunday, which on that Sunday, we received our new birth. Okay? The next Sunday, the second Sunday, which came 50 days later, I want to call Pentecost Sunday. Now, on both of these Sundays, the believers had an experience of receiving the Holy Spirit. There were two experiences, encounters with the Holy Spirit, but it was different what they received. It was different than on Resurrection Sunday than on Pentecost Sunday. But some believe that there's really only one experience that you have with the Holy Spirit. And that's on Resurrection Sunday. But I'm going to show you, I hope that as we look at the scriptures, we can see that the nature of both of these experiences, when we understand them, we'll know relationally where we line up in what God has done for us on the cross. And you can ask yourselves some questions as we're kind of going through the message today. Have I received Holy Spirit's power? It's a question I just want you to ask yourself. Is there something more for me to receive even after Resurrection Sunday? And what is involved in receiving the Holy Spirit? So let's look at the, the account of Resurrection Sunday. This is Christ's first appearance with his disciples uh, that is recorded in the Scripture. John 20, verse 19 through 22. John 20. 19 through 22. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, that day is the day of his crucifixion. It's the first day of the week. And, and you know, of course, that the first day of the week is what we call Sunday to a Jew. See, the Sabbath, after seven days, a, a, the Jewish tradition, they have a Sabbath, and the first day of the week in Jerusalem is actually on Sunday. It's not Monday. It's Sunday. Really, I've been in Jerusalem, and the busiest day of the week is Sunday. I mean, it's like they've been on Sabbath. They've been in their homes. They've rested. They didn't, you know, they kicked back. They ate bonbons. And they're like, let's get out of here. I mean, it's like really Incredible on the highways on Sunday. It's like everything is just like a big buzz. A you know, everything is, is kind of blowing and going. So in that, it is the busiest day. They're coming out of a day of rest on Sabbath. So now let's look back at verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. Why did he do that? I mean, I believe that he wanted to convince them to see with their actual eyes the same body that they had seen pierced and hanging on the cross. He wanted them to see it. It is me with the hole in my, in my hands, my feet, and in my side. So he was gloriously transformed 
but it was still the same body. So the disciples then, they rejoiced, obviously, when they saw the Lord, and Jesus said to them again, peace, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And he didn't stand at a distance and like collectively have all the 11 there and just like breathe. What he did was he actually came up and he was face to face with each of his disciples and the word there, breathe, actually means like you're breathing into a flute. The breath of, of blowing into a flute. So he actually got right up face to face with them, and he breathed into them holy breath. He breathed into them the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit came on the inside of them. This is their actual new birth experience. This is actually their recreated, born again, born anew, born from above experience that they had with Jesus. So he blew on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. So what's the implication of that? Well, my understanding is that at the point what we're walking, what we're seeing is the juncture between the, the Old Testament salvation and the New Testament salvation. So you understand that people in the Old Testament were forgiven of their sin once a year as they believed in the sacrifice that was made atone for them. They received forgiveness, cleansing of their sin for one year. But guess what? They had to do it another year. And what is happening is that we are transitioning from having to continually do sacrifices to where now there's only one sacrifice forevermore that accomplished everything for us. And so in that, it is a, a sacrifice that is saved us forevermore through our faith in the finished work of the cross. As we confess with our hearts, he's my Lord, and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So in that, we are born into a new life. And, and then Jesus says, when he said, it is finished, when we look back at, at the finished work of what he did, we could figuratively say last Sunday, um, we get to experience two things. Or actually, there's two things that are needed for us to experience what this glorious thing that has been accomplished for us, and that's Romans 10, 9. So let's look at that. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So for New Testament salvation, there's two requirements. You confess Jesus as Lord and you believe that God raised him from the dead. So the moment that the disciples, they, they believed in Jesus, they confessed Jesus, but they had the opportunity now to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, which accomplished 
the scriptures that say you confess him as Lord and you believe that God rose him from the dead. They had the opportunity to enter into this salvation experience because of a face-to-face encounter with Jesus in receiving the Holy Spirit when he breathed into them the newness of life. So the word for spirit is pneuma. It's also the word for breath or, or wind. So when he breathed into them, he said, receive the Holy Spirit. So what he was basically saying, you're receiving holy breath. You're receiving my recreated breath. You're, re- you're receiving my life in you, and it recreated within you a new crea- into a new creation. It's just like what God did when he formed Adam uh, in, the, in the garden. He basically breathed into him life, and he was recreated as a living soul. So it's kind of following the pattern of the garden, but it's not the garden. This is the cross, and this is eternal forever and ever. So when he breathes into his disciples a life, he's breathing the total victorious life that he won on the cross. So he's giving you the life that that has enabled you to walk out your victory now today. But the challenge is, is that right now we're at a point where, where the enemy, wouldn't you think, I mean, I don't want to think what he would think, but I do know that the day after the resurrection would be, from his perspective, a real timely moment to assault you, to attack you, to go against you to try to thwart you, to try to discourage you, to try to upend what has been won last weekend. He's trying to go after this glorious victory because he doesn't want you to be, you know, celebrating just at halftime, and then he wants you to lose the game. He wants to come back, even though it might be halftime, he wants to come back and and take the ground that you might have won last weekend. So it is an all-out assault, and, and the enemy received a, a major black eye. And so he's upset because he's totally defeated, but the fact is, is that we've got to stand our ground as the body of Christ and hold the ground for the victory that we have in Jesus and not lose any ground in the Spirit, in our own personal lives, in our own relationships there are so many things that comes at us that we've got to stand in the full armor of God. So in that, you know, what can happen, the disciples receive eternal resurrection life on the inside of them. But what happened is that they still lacked direction. They still lacked uh, courage. Because why? They were in the, in the room fearful. They were fearful of the Jews. So, so basically, there's inaction going on, and, and they were not operating in any power. It was business as usual in Jerusalem after the crucifixion. They were still going to the synagogue. They were still praising God. And 
And many days later, what does Peter do? He goes back to fishing. You go back to your old ways of doing things. I mean, if I was Peter, which in many ways I could identify this, I would go fishing. That would be something I would do. I would go thinking, what have we just gone through? And I would say, okay, let me get another fish. So, I mean, I would be fishing. I'm a fisherman. I love to fish. I just got two new fly poles. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I got new fly poles, and I got them rigged up, and they're ready to go. So I can't wait. But Peter still didn't know his destiny. He didn't know who he was. And, and they were making no impact on Jerusalem at that moment. There was no difference going on, church. So everything was going on business as usual. And, and Jesus told them after this experience, in a period between Resurrection Sunday and the time of his ascension, Jesus told them this. There was more to receive. There is more to receive after Resurrection Sunday. So it's important to realize and, and not just sit back and think, well, there's no more for me to receive. There's no more for me. Some people think that they got it all when they were saved. But I want to tell you, you do have, you do have it all. But there's more. There's more. And that's what we got to see, that there's more that is getting ready to unfold. So I want to read two passages in which Jesus made it very clear that there was more to receive than they had received through a new birth. As wonderful as that was, he says that there is more. So let's look at Luke 24, verse 48 through 49. Luke 24, verse 48 through 49. Now, bear in mind that these words were spoken shortly before his ascension. Something like 40 days after his resurrection. So verse 48 says this. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Do you understand what's unfolding here? So he's saying to them, there's more to come. There's more to receive. The Father's promise you have not received it yet. But when you receive this promise, you will receive power to be my witnesses. You got to understand that, right? Up until that time, they were afraid. They're, in the, they're shut up in a room, and they're very ineffective. They're very cowardly. I heard someone the other day say, you know, I, I'm, I'm actually kind of afraid 
to witness with somebody to somebody about Jesus. And I said, well, I know the solution to that. Is that you need the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the power of the Holy Spirit helps you overcome all fear. You don't think about yourself anymore. When the anointing of the power of the Holy Spirit is upon you, you have such boldness and courage that you can face any situation Because you know what? It's not about you anymore. You've been delivered from the fear of man. You've been delivered from the fear of what people think of you. You've been delivered of what people are saying about you. You know what? It's none of my business what other people think about me. It's none of my business what other people even say about me. It's none of my business, period. Because I got good news. And it's not about me anymore. It's all about Jesus. So in that, I am like walking, as the scripture says, we are to what? Deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. You deny. I wonder what people think about me. You're denying those feelings of wanting self-preservation. You're getting rid of those things. And so he said, what you've heard from me, and then he explains what the promise of the Father is in in verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's the promise of the Father, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then he explained the purpose, which is in verse 8, and he said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So that's the promise to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And what is the purpose? What's the purpose? To receive power. To receive power that you might live out the victorious victory that was won last Sunday. It is to receive the power that you might be a witness wherever you go. Your life is a billboard now. You know, I I love what Rocky got me a t-shirt just recently. It says, ask me about Jesus. You know, I mean, are you willing to wear that T-shirt? Will you wear that in Ingalls? Will you wear that downtown? Will you wear that at work? Ask me about Jesus. I love that. I mean, you put that on, I mean, you're killing the fear of man. But receiving the power to be witnesses... That had not yet happened. I want you to understand something. It had not yet happened. This was approximately 40 days after the Resurrection Sunday experience where they had had received the Holy Spirit in new birth. Do you understand? John 20 is new birth. He breathed into them life, new birth. But Jesus said, there's coming another experience in which you'll be endued 
with power to be my witnesses. So there's two experiences with the Holy Spirit. So now I want you to turn to Acts 2. And we'll read some verses that describes the fulfillment of the promise. And we're talking now about Pentecost Sunday. Verse 1. So when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves. And they rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. See, baptism in water, the Greek word for baptism is baptismo. It means full immersion. It means you're, you're going under the water, in the water. It's immersion. You're going under the water and you're coming up a new creature in Christ. But baptism in the Holy Spirit is an immersion in the Holy Spirit. Baptism in water is, is you go down into the water and you come out of it. Baptism in the Holy Spirit comes down upon you and immerses you from above. It's like as if you're standing. Can you imagine Niagara Falls? Imagine standing under Niagara Falls. The water is coming down upon you, and it's immersing you. And it's, it's, it's just like, I mean, it would be a force to be reckoned with. They think about that, that Niagara Falls. But it, the water is coming down upon you like the Spirit is, and it's immersing you from above. But each of these are an immersion, both of them, baptism in water and baptism in the Holy Spirit. But the second one is an immersion from above. So here we are, the Sunday after Easter. And I got a question to, to ask you. Do you have the power and the strength to stand in his glorious victory that was won last Sunday. Do you have the power and the strength to stand in this glorious victory that has been won? The first thing that we need to understand that after the glorious resurrection Sunday, it is true that many people are hit. You're hit with satanic forces and you're, you're dealing with principalities and powers and rulers in heavenly places like we find in Ephesians 6. That's what you're contending with. That's what you're up against is satanic forces. But it's very important to understand that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has already administered to Satan. I want you to write this down. He's administered to Satan a total, permanent, final, irreversible defeat. Isn't that good? 
Write that down. It's a permanent, it's final, it's irreversible defeat. That's what's been administered to Satan. So you got to understand that the basis is of victory is based on that. It's permanent. It's final. It's irreversible. It can't be changed. It can't be altered in any way. Because when Jesus said it's finished, nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken away from it. It is complete. He is defeated. But do you have the mindset and the understanding that he is totally defeated? Because there's some way in which we wake up maybe the next day and we're like, well, he really still feels like he's pretty strong. (laughs) He still feels like, well, he's kind of got the upper hand in this one area of my life. Is he defeated totally or not? He's been annihilated. He's been stripped. He's been humiliated. Why do we give him any room to even imagine the thinking, to think that maybe he's still got a little bit of power? He's been annihilated. He's been destroyed. Think of all the wonderful words that line up with this. It's like, it is done. And this is clearly stated in Colossians 2. I want you to look at this. Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. Having forgiven us all, say that word, all all our transgressions. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it away, out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. I want to start with the closing verse. The rulers and authorities are basically what I shared earlier. They're referred to uh, the rulers and authorities like in Ephesians 6 when it talks about principalities and powers, rulers and authorities. It's different, it's different levels of the satanic kingdom. It's different ranks in the kingdom of darkness. And this is what we're wrestling against. But we need to understand that Jesus has ministered a total public defeat of him. And the word there that they use, that that Paul uses, having triumphant, we need to understand what this triumphant is. It was a part of the Roman culture or the Roman Empire at the time. When a Roman general was successful in war, he would return to Rome and the Senate voted for him a triumph. And what, it, what they would do is they would put him on a chariot with a white horse, and the general would, would parade all, all the way through Rome. All the people would be out on the road just celebrating 
the glorious victory of this general, behind the general would be the, the, the commander, the captains, all of the army of the defeated army in chains walking behind the chariot. And then they would have all of the, the, the military uh, personnel, all the soldiers, and they would even bring back animals from the regions that they conquered that are animals that they wouldn't normally recognize in Rome. So it was quite a celebration, but it was a public display of defeat of the enemy. So the commander's there, and he's got the generals behind him who he defeated. They're in chains and just walking behind the chariot as he was leading them through the streets in Rome. And this is a, a, an incredible picture of a triumph. This is an incredible picture that is portrayed here by Paul. And the language that he's using is saying that by Christ's death and resurrection, Jesus was placed on a triumphal chariot. And he led it through the unseen world. And behind him were all the forces of darkness, stripped of all their power and all their authority. And they're walking in total defeat behind the chariot with the white horse that our Savior was riding. He rode it all the way through the alleys and the dark places down in the underworld. And he publicly displayed and humiliated them all. It was an irreversible defeat. They were conquered. That's what a total victory is for us as Christians, knowing what our Savior has done for us. So to obtain this victory, Jesus did two things for us. And I, I, I can't get into it all right now because of time. But the first is, it relates to the past. It relates to your past. And we need to bear in mind, you know, Satan's greatest weapon against us is guilt. If he can get you feeling guilty for what you did last week, last year, five years ago, you remember what you did 10 years ago? If he can get you feeling guilty about your past, he's got a hold on you. And the reality is, as long as the enemy can keep us guilty, we are no match for him. But in this victory, Jesus dealt, he dealt with the problem of guilt. He eliminated it. He removed it. So in regards to the past, he made it possible for us to be forgiven of all our previous sins. And it's important to remember, having been forgiven us all trespasses, this little word called A-L-L. It doesn't mean some. It doesn't mean partial. It doesn't mean, well, maybe 30%. It means all. All your sin. But the reality is, can you receive that by faith in your heart that all of your sin is forgiven and let go of the guilt. Because a lot of times, 
The, the guilt is coming from you feel bad. You, you feel guilty for yourself. You can't forgive yourself. You feel guilty about how you treated other people. You feel guilty of the ramifications of your sin. You feel guilty. Guilt has been removed. The cross removed all guilt from all sin. But if you stay in guilt, the enemy's got a hold on you and it circumvents the power of the cross to manifest in your life. Do you realize I'm not deserving to be a witness for Jesus? I blew it. I can't go out there and share with people that I've been born again if they only knew what I did. If the enemy can keep you in guilt, what happens is that you're not able to walk out the fullness of the victory that was won last weekend. You're going to continually limp through life. You know, you're kind of going to be maybe going 50%. You're like, praise the Lord. And then you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe what I just did a week ago. You know, you have to believe all is all. All is all. I don't care what the sin was. It's all been forgiven. I don't care what you did. It's all been forgiven. It's all been cleansed. We have to believe that every sin we have committed has been forgiven. Do you receive that? Do you receive that in your heart? I don't care how much of a rascal you were. You were forgiven. That is good news. I, uh, I don't, you know, dragging guilt behind me. It's like, oh, it's like dragging a dead man behind me. You know, you got something of your past you can't let go of, you feel guilty of. It's like you're dragging a dead person behind you. Well, if they only saw. It just short circuits from walking in the fullness and the power and standing in the victory of the cross. And the other thing, it's a little more complicated to unravel, I would say, in five minutes. <laughs> Let me just say this, that Jesus has abolished the law of Moses as a means to achieve righteousness with God. Let me explain. He's not abolished it as a part of the Word of God, as, as lessons that we can learn, as a part of history of Israel He's abolished it as a requirement for achieving righteousness with God. And why is that so important? As long as the law was a requirement, every time that you wanted to stand in the victory of the cross, every time that you wanted to claim that you are righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus. If you're trying to find out if there's some way that I can work my way into righteousness, I might need to perform something. I might need to, to do something to, to be right with God. If, if anything is on the basis of your performance, you're falling into what is known as legalism, the law. And see, when you're trying to be perfect, 
apart from the finished work of the cross, you're actually stepping into the works of the law. And see, that's when the devil says, I got you. Because you know what? There's this command. There's this ordinance. And section 2, volume 3, line 2, you have committed sin. So therefore... Therefore, he says, I find you guilty. And when you're living out a life of performance, the devil is going to continually remind you that you're guilty, and he's going to remind you of your past. And when you're not putting your trust and putting your faith in the finished work of the cross, because that's how we receive righteousness, is because of our, our believing that, because what does it say? When, when he was nailed to the cross, when Jesus died on the cross, he put an end to the law in all aspects. And he says it very vividly. Let's read what it says. And he nailed it to the cross. Everything, every accusation, everything written against you is nailed to the cross. So it's all been nailed up there as, as a witness, just think about it. All of your works, all of your sin has been nailed to the cross as a witness to the devil that it is finished. Yeah. I am forgiven. Yeah. I am cleansed. I am born anew. There's no more guilt. When it's nailed to the cross, it's, it's writing. All those things that are written against you are hostile. Why? Because they're accusing you of your past. They're accusing you that you have not uh, walked out the law perfectly, therefore you're condemned. All those are accusations. He says, I nailed it to the cross for you. So you don't have to be perfect anymore. Aren't you glad you don't have to be perfect anymore? You don't have to be perfect anymore. You don't have to live a performance-oriented life anymore. So from this day forward... You're not under the law anymore. So our righteousness does not depend on keeping commandments. It depends on faith. Faith. We are justified and made righteous by faith. What is our faith in? What was done on the cross? Our faith is in regards to what our Savior's done for this. So in that, you know, this is, this is so real and vivid with Peter. I mean, Peter was Mr. Foot in the Mouth. I mean, he, the guy, I mean, he was a great leader, but he stuck his foot in his mouth all the time. So he's there at the Last Supper, and, and Jesus tells him, you're going to deny me three times before the night is out. And he said, no way. There's no way that I'm going to deny you. I'll die for you. And, but Jesus said to him, what does he say to him? I prayed for you, Peter. Not that you would not deny me. He didn't pray that, that Peter, please, I'm praying for you. Don't deny me. You know what he prays? That your faith will not fail. 
He's not talking about Peter. Don't mess up again. He's saying, Peter, I'm praying that your faith, your faith will not be shaken. We, are, we can never move away from our faith. Let no failure, accusation ever move you from your faith that Jesus died in your place, bore your sins, was made sin for you, and has offered you the garment of his spotless righteousness. I mean, this is incredible. He took your sin, and he gave you his righteousness. That is the great exchange. So my faith in what Jesus died for me for, died for me, I gave him, I repent of my sin, he takes the sin, and he gives me his righteousness. That's all based on faith. And that destroys guilt. That destroys you beating yourself up anymore. You know, sometimes we can be our worst enemy. You know, we're, we're doing this. We're wanting to beat ourselves up. Stop beating yourself up. He's already paid the punishment. Why do you beat yourself up? So the reality is, you receive this by faith. You are no longer guilty. You no longer have to live after the law anymore. And these two aspects are the very aspects that render the church powerless, powerless on the second Sunday after Resurrection Sunday. Because some of you are still struggling with guilt. Some of you might still be thinking, i got to be perfect. Oh, I just really blew it last weekend. He's never going to accept me again. i got to do something right. The reality is it's not based on any of that. You've disarmed the enemy. And now we can be more as we stand in faith, as Romans 8.37 says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And you know what that really means? Is that more than conquerors, uh, it refers to those who gain a surpassing victory. It's present tense. So what it means is you keep on winning the glorious victory. You don't take your foot off the pedal. You put it down to the floor. And we're going to ride with Jesus. And we're going to keep seeing victory after victory after victory because it's all been won and the enemy is totally annihilated and defeated. So he doesn't have a hold on you anymore. I think this is good news. I think this is glorious news. Now, what I want to talk to you next week about is how do you receive the power? Because I think there are some people that might be born again and saved, but you're still not walking in the power. You still don't have the power of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that the Holy Spirit's power is going to empower you to walk out your life victoriously and not feel like you're going under when you're really over Him. Amen? Okay, let's stand. Father, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the power of the finished work of the cross. 
and that you have gained a total victory for us that is irrevocable. It cannot be changed. And Lord, we thank you that it's a nail in a sure place. And you've nailed everything written against us and you nailed it to the cross that we might have freedom in you, Jesus. So Lord, we worship you and we praise you. And Lord, this gives us a really good reason to exalt you and worship you with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Lord, we thank you for Resurrection Sunday. And we thank you that today we also get to walk in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray today that your church would arise victoriously and that we would not cower back, we would not shrink back, but that we would press on and set our face like a flint to the cross. And, Lord, we praise you and we thank you for this glorious victory that you have won for us in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.